Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 11th, 2015. Well, it's been another week of going through these sub-zero temperatures as we go through global warming and it now called climate change, of course. And uh, uh, it's been really cold in, in this part of Canada uh, where you're 20, 25, almost yeah, something is 30 below in the centigrade, centigrade level. And during the day, it's... Uh, is sometimes not much warmer, in fact, never gets above the zero. So we're going through these big, big uh, changes, of course, as the big geoengineering uh, campaign goes on with the chem sprays and so on, and with the weather manipulation too, because they're using uh, electromagnetic uh, frequencies and so on involved in it too to get these storms going, these winter storms. And uh, we're getting kind of used to it, of course, up here in Canada. And I'm sure it's going to bankrupt a lot of people with the heating bills this year. Uh, just that alone, because uh, it's way beyond uh, what you normally expect. It was bad enough last year, but this year's got it too. So I hope you're all surviving and uh, get these big Arctic blasts going all the way down through Canada into the States, different part of the U.S. states who are also suffering from it too. And it doesn't make the roads awfully good at all. But um, we have to hang on as we go through these big plan changes in this world where reality is presented to us uh, after going through all of its um, makeovers, you might say, by intelligence companies and secret service companies and all the big organizations are involved in giving you all of your reality uh, and telling you what your conclusions are supposed to be as well. And to always blame you for causing all these weather changes at the same time as they're spraying you and making it all happen. Now, when you get that going on, which is going on, uh, and it's gone on for some time now, uh, and have big, big outcomes to plan for all of this with your high carbon taxes changing your whole way of life, uh, energy taxes on all produce that you purchase, uh, because that supposedly would take energy to, to produce those chocolate bars and the wrappers even, all be tacked on to it as well. Everything you purchase will be the same way. And eventually they have to get you into austerity down the road. And, and, and there have no doubt got planned crashes again with the banks. Now they've done all their stress tests, their world tra- uh, stress tests. And they've all signed on to the bailouts and bail-ins uh, across the world for, under the guise, under the supervision, supposedly, of the World Bank. So we're sailing along into big changes and we're supposed to just get used to it. Most folk will get used to it and they do get used to it. Because they don't reason anything through. They just uh, most folk don't really think too much. They hear the things getting delivered to them, and it goes right into their subconscious, and they don't stop and analyze anything at all. They think it must be all quite natural and normal. That's how we're trained, actually, uh, since uh, the age of communication intensified many years ago. Uh, they realized they could train whole populations by radio, then television, and even through fiction and movies, etc. So it's doing an awfully good job. And they have to bring in this new system uh, as we go through uh, basically a martial law in every country as terrorism supposedly increases, increases, increases to bring in a whole new system altogether from birth to death of how we're supposed to live. And I, I got to laugh a lot of the, the, the oh, what they dish out now as news is so awful. Uh, I'm sure a lot of it comes from intelligence agencies. In fact, fact, we know that has happened in the past with handouts from intelligence agencies that simply are handed out to certain reporters who are only too happy to put it in their papers. They might just put it in complete or they might change a word here or there and put their own name on it. But um, that's how reality is presented to the general public. There's not much truth involved. If there is any truth at all, it's spun heavily. Uh, the rest of the truth is omitted, so you're left with half a story, which will lead, lead you to the conclusion that you're supposed to come to. It, it gets awfully boring, in fact, because everything that's happening is on a big agenda, and it's awfully predictable when you understand how it works and the different groups behind it that are often connected to the top uh, who bring you all these things to happen. It's like the bombings that go across the world or the shootings in Paris recently. You don't know who really is behind it. You don't know. because, In fact, the guys who can even perpetrate such things don't know either. They think they do. But it can be different intelligence agencies that are guiding them at the top uh, through one of their own people. 
uh, and they'll never suspect to, to the minute they die that they've been set up to do something, to achieve a further goal in this totalitarian police state network worldwide that's being set up so heavily and so fast. The other thing you can count on too is the blowback, as they call it, intelligence services. When you went to countries for years and years and years, uh, and you send in troops for years to bring out the raw resources and for the big corporations that are based in your countries, eventually you get blowback. Blowback is when enough of the, of the people that have been killed in those countries opposing uh, the troops that are being sent in. They've lost relatives, they've lost so much, and they start to retaliate in the way that's allowed today. I say allowed because you, they don't have the big armies and so on and to have full-scale invasions. And so they have small groups that, that train themselves or are trained to go out and do acts of uh, terrorism, basically. And this stuff was discussed back in the 60s and disclosed with freedom of document, uh, information documentation from MI6, CIA, and so on, like that. Blowbacks is what you get, though, and blowback can go on for decades, if not generations, uh, and people are really ticked off. The blowback, too, by the way, has really got much, much bigger uh, and profuse since the drone strikes became uh, an everyday commonplace reality of folk getting blown up who don't even see where the missiles come from or the gunfire comes from with these pretty silent drones. They can be miles and miles away from the target. And whole families get wiped out uh, at weddings and everything else. Supposedly, uh, and it's always an answer, always to take out a certain terrorist and the rest of them are are collateral damage. They just happen to be in the wrong place at at the wrong time. And that's the way it's treated. Well, when you lose your relatives and sometimes all your relatives, you might decide to become radicalized as well. It's going to cause that, and then you're recruited, and then you have different agencies involved, CIA, there are Mossad agencies involved in these things too. Uh, they're, all, they're all working together, by the way. I don't differentiate any of them. The CIA, MI6, and Mossad are what one group, as far as I'm concerned, with their sharing of intelligence at the top, and lots of cooperation. So they have their own agendas and directions to go. Uh, and they can never tell the, the truth to the public whatsoever. They're after desired results, and th- their goal is to blame certain factions and keep things going and going and going. And that's what's happening today. So there's very little you can read that's straightforward as it's presented in the media, uh, because that's also uh, many articles that are actually written by intelligence agencies for the media. So what can you actually believe? But we do know that blowback will go on forever, basically. Now, back in February 19th, 2014, it says here in this article, uh, it says, French Islamists have sued a satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo for a blasphemy in Strasbourg for publishing a cover page with the headline, The Quran is shit, it doesn't stop bullets. The League of Judicial Defense of Muslims, led by former lawyers uh, Karim Achu, or Achu, has uh, brought the case before the criminal court in Alsace-Moselle's capital, the region which also was annexed by Germany in 1871-1940-45, still retains part of the old German code that includes the blasphemy crime, which no longer exists in the rest of France. It goes on to say here uh, that uh, the LDJM has also sued Charlie Brown in Paris for provocation an incitement to hatred on the basis of religious affiliation and insult. And it goes on and on and on. But here's the thing, though. When you look at this organization, this, this Charlie Hebdo, uh, it, it claims it's left-wing. It has a lot in common with the Frankfurt School of destroying cultures and also especially destroying religions, at least most religions. And I think the head of it even said at one point, they were going to portray or bring down Islam into the same uh, banal state as that that they brought, they brought down uh, Catholicism over the years. So they definitely have agendas there. It's not just humor. It's not even clever humor. It's like bathroom humor uh, that you get in junior school. And um, 
and of course they were pushing for particular uh, uh, rights and so on. It's interesting too that Sarkozy apparently uh, met one of these attackers at the Charlie Hebdo uh, a few years ago. He met him, and uh, there's connections there too between Sarkozy and them as well. So you don't know which organisation is really at the top of this. Uh, and you can actually get Muslim organizations that are ruled by outside factions, of course, as well. And they're unknown to the ones who follow it. So uh, this is standard. When we get involved in anything and they try to go into any kind of radical move, whatever it happens to be, be very careful and don't do it because you're being used by somebody else, often from outside your organization, who actually maybe even set up your organization for you to join. And it's not for you at all. So be very, very careful. And um, another article, too, about the, the French Muslim groomers to sue the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo for the publication of cartoons uh, portraying the Prophet Muhammad. The French embassies in 20 countries will be on high alert Friday, feeling that violent protests over a controversial film may be repeated. And that's back in 2012. So these guys have been hammering at this, you know, at, at Muslims for years now. And uh, it's like they, they wanted something to happen. Somebody did. Somebody obviously did. Somebody obviously, obviously really did want something to happen. Who suffers well, the French themselves, be under more surveillance, yada, yada, yada. Just like 9-11 did it for uh, the US, Canada, and so on. Now, here's another article here. Um, before I leave it, I'll just say one last thing. Uh, in the world of spookdom, that's what I call spookdom, they're all interconnected, and, and be very, very careful of the, all of them, because you'll never get fact. You'll, you'll just get what they'll dish out to the media, to say to the media, so that, so that you'll believe whatever they tell you. But you'll never get the nitty-gritty on anything at the time. It takes many years, sometimes 50, 60 years, before they'll, they'll disclose any truth about any particular thing. And often they'll never do it at all, actual truth. I remember, I think it was P- Pierre Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, the guy who was... Uh, the young communist leader for Canada, Comintern, the organization Comintern, a government in Moscow, he led it, the delegation to Canada, to, from Canada to the Soviet Union in 1952. And he knew uh, top operatives within the government and civil service. And the list that even Gozenko had come out with back in the, at the end of World War II of high-profile infiltrators inside the Canadian government and, and the bureaucracies uh, was reclassified for about another 30 to 50 years by Trudeau. So uh, before he left, and the last day, the last day he before he left, actually, uh, so uh, that the public are not to know. That, that's your democracies for you. Now, the next story here is about uh, PI. There's this organization called PI, it says. And it says, how pedophiles infiltrated the left and hijacked the fight for civil rights. Civil rights, eh? And that's how they do things. It's always for a good cause, no matter what it is, eh? Pedophiles. And it gives you some of the campaigners for a particular organization for civil rights. And it says, a 1970s campaign to lower the age of consent has returned to haunt Harriet Harman, Patricia Hewitt, and Jack Dromey. But in such a liberal climate, it wasn't hard for a small, determined group to exploit a commitment to free speech. That's the guys they put it under, you see. So they go on about all oh, the promiscuity at the time. They're getting all these freedoms, a promiscuity, and God knows what else. But they're also pushing... Uh, uh, unknown to them, they claim now, uh, the PI organizers and it's a pedophile information exchange group who pass on good targets to each other. These guys are pedophiles. And this article from the Daily Mail goes through it and, and it says, um, but how did the pedophile information exchange, whose affiliation to the NCCL has been exclusively investigated by the Daily Mail, came, come to get a ticket to the party? And they claim it's because it's a liberal time in the whole thing, and they're trying to lower the age of consent between children, basically, down to 14. And these guys came on, in, uh, on the act with their own agenda very quietly. This is what they claim, which I think is nonsense. They all knew who, who was what. They, they knew all this stuff. And uh, they, they wanted to lower the age of consent until they could get uh, 
total destruction of, of the culture. That's what the left, far left do. To build the new, you see. Destroy all the old, that's everything. They give you your morals, your culture, everything. Destroy it all and bring in the new. So, and they would rule it, these guys who would cause it to happen. That's what they did in the Soviet Union. And it says that so the motion was passed two years after Harman has claimed that the group no longer wielded influence in the NCCL. They've been uh, pushed to the margins before I actually went into it. Well, they're all trying to distance themselves from it now, you see. And um, it says, admittedly, any group could join the NCCL, which had more than 1,000 affiliate member organizations, and the council's motion probably owed more to defending the principle of free speech than defending Pi, really. And it would be wrong to portray Pi as a major force, being small, comprising only a handful of activists, with a membership estimated to between 300 and 1,000. Pi was not a powerful voice at the time, when the main debates within the council were about sexual equality and race relations. But its views were so profound, abhorrent to most of Britain, that it's still hard to see why the council did not do more to disown pie from the start. Now that's not true, and these far-left radicals, believe you me, they discuss everything. And it's like Hollywood, to be an actor or actress, you cannot, you cannot have any inhibitions on anything. This avant-garde. And the, the far left is exactly the same. You have no, you can have, you can voice no inhibitions about anything regarding morality. So, of course, the the ones who are involved and they made their career in politics um, are trying to distance themselves from it now. And uh, and this next article goes on to say this one. It says that. Um, <laughs> A pedophile at the Home Office. The Home Office is like the, the Homeland Security base for all Britain's security. It says he boasted of storing pie files where police would never discover them. He worked there. He was employed by the government. It says Stephen Smith worked as a contractor monitoring security alarms at Whitehall. The 60-year-old said he was given security clearance for the job by Scotland Yard. Oh, they just missed him, eh? A complete background check, but they missed it. He's a paedophile. At the time, Smith was the chairman of the Paedophile Information Exchange, the chairman of it. He went on the run while facing charges over child abuse images before being jailed in 1991 and again in 2011. And that's 7th of July 2014, this article. So the the former leader of the uh, pedophile campaign boasted of storing the group's files in the home office where he he worked there. He was given security clearance for his job at Scotland Yard, despite being the chairman. He worked as an electrical contractor monitoring security alarms at the home office for four years in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Smith later went on the run while facing charges over sex abuse. This is an obscure book published in 1986. He told he was given a room of his own at the home office and use it to conceal Pi's files. So, the, so, so there you go, the Home Office that checks out all, all things, supposedly, and all the citizens, uh, for security reasons, gave him a room, the chairman of this group, and uh, where he could hide it, and the cops would never find it. Never think of looking there. For four years, it was employed by a firm of electrical contractors, complete maintenance, to monitor a control panel of alarm systems at the Home Office, he said. The job entailed practically no work on my part, because that's what you do when you government contracts and you work for the government, beyond attending the panel, and in fact had a a furnished office completely to myself seven days a week on a rotating shift basis. Much of Pi's less sensitive file material was stored in locked cabinets there, where no police raid would ever have found them. Each year my security clearance was renewed by Scotland Yard without my connection with Pi being discovered. So, do you really think they're that inept? Do you really believe that? He claimed he used a phone number in the Home Office building as a contact point for Pi. A later trial heard that he probably published an obscene magazine from inside the ministry. Well, that makes sense, eh? It's like George Orwell's 1984, where the ministry... They ran everything, published all the porno magazines and novels. Today would have movies too. And, and uh, Smith, also known as Stephen Freeman, 
lost his job when his own, own pie was exposed by a newspaper, not by the government or the agencies, but by a newspaper in 1982. He said he had hoped the revelation that the leader of a paedophile group had been employed in the heart of Westminster would lead to the resignation of the then Home Secretary, Willie Whitelaw. But no heads rolled, and it appears that there was only a limited official investigation into his role at the department. The extent of security chiefs' knowledge of my activities did not prompt them to investigate the content of my filing cabinets. Oh, they'd know it was there, all right. And a carload of pie files was safely spurted from the building before it could occur to them to intervene, he wrote. Oh, they're all too stupid, right? A second senior pie official, the group's secretary and treasurer, Barry Cutler, is also said to have worked at the Home Office in the 1980s. In 1983, it was reported that a Home Office civil servant had received a series of slides with images of abuse of young boys and obscene letters delivered to his department address. One colleague protested that material should be handed over to the police, but this was ignored and it was treated as a purely internal matter, according to a Daily Express report at the time. Smith fled to Holland in 1984 to escape trial after Pye was infiltrated by headmaster and anti-child abuse campaigner Charles Oxley. Smith claimed political asylum by arguing that he was part of a minority political group campaigning for changes in the law in the UK. He turned to Britain in 91, and the mistaken belief he would not be arrested was jailed at the Old Bailey for 18 months. 18 months for homosexual paedophilia. And it goes on and on and on. But, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you're told is just overlooked by the agencies, these, you know, the, the best intelligence agencies that you have, they just didn't notice this stuff. And so what would the intelligence agencies eventually come up with to cover their, their backsides, right? So what kind of story would they come up with if they were actually behind it all? Exclusive Secret Service infiltrated paedophile group to blackmail establishment, it says. This is from the Daily Express, June 29th, 2014. It said a number of allegations of child sex abuse emerged after the Member of Parliament Cyril Smith's death. The former civil servant has told detectives investigating activities of paedophiles in national politics uh, that the Metropolitan Police's special branch was orchestrating the child sex lobbying group in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The whistleblower who has spoken exclusively to the Sunday Express says he was also warned off asking why such a notorious group was being handed government money. It emerged recently late last year that Pi was twice given amounts of £35,000 in Home Office funding. That's all taxpayers' money. Between 1977 and 1980, and the £70,000 total equivalent to over £400,000 in today's money. These details surfaced only after the whistleblower highlighted his concern to campaigning Labour Member of Parliament Tom Watson and his revelations have triggered an ongoing Home Office inquiry into why the cash was given to Pi, which was abolished in 1985 after a number of prosecutions. Until our speculation about the grant has centred on Clifford Hindley, the late Home Office manager who approved the payments. However, the whistleblower told the Sunday Express he thought higher and more sinister powers were at play. He's given a formal statement to that effect to detectives from Operation Fernbridge, which is looking into allegations of historic sex abuse at the Elm Guest House in South West London. Or South, yeah, South West London. At that time, questioning anything to do with special branches, especially within the Home Office, was a no-no. And it says, Pi, now considered one of the most notorious groups of the era, has gained respectability in political circles. Its members are said to have included establishment figures and disgraced Liberal Member of Parliament Cyril Smith. He was a friend of founder member Peter Wrighton. In 1981, Tory Member of Parliament Geoffrey Dickens used parliamentary privilege to name Sir Peter Heyman, the Deputy Director of MI6, as a member of Pi, an active paedophile. In 1983, Mr. Dickens gave the Home Office a dossier of what he claimed was evidence of a paedophile network of big, big names, people in power, in positions of power, influence and responsibility. The Home Office says the dossier no longer exists. Whistleblower Mr. X, whose identity uh, the paper agreed to protect, became a very senior figure in local government before retiring a few years ago. 
In the late 1970s and early 1980s, he was a full-time consultant in the Home Office's Voluntary Services Unit run by Clifford Hindley. In 1979, Mr. X was asked to examine a funding renewal application for PI, but he became concerned because the organization's goal of seeking to abolish the age of consent conflicted with the child protection policies of the Department of Health and Social Security and asked for a meeting with Mr. Hindley, his immediate boss. Mr. X recalled I raised my concerns, but he told me that I was to drop them. Hindley gave three reasons for this. He said PI was an organization with cachet, and that its work in this field was respected. Hmm. He said this was a renewal of an existing grant, and that under normal home office practice, a consultant such as myself would not be involved in the decision-making process. And he said PI was being funded at the request of a special branch, which found it politically useful to identify people who were paedophiles. This led me to not to pursue my objections at the time, Questioning the ethnic to a special branch, especially within the Home Office, was a no-no. I was also under the clear belief that I was being instructed to back off and that his reference to special branch was expected to make me do so. It says, Henry didn't give me an explicit explanation of what a special branch could do with information again from funding Pi, but I formed a belief that it was part of an undercover cover operation or activity. I was aware of a lot of people in the civil service or political arena had an untrust in obtaining information like that which could be used as a sort of blackmail. Now, you understand, with all the present scandals which have resurfaced with uh, Prince Andrew and, and uh, uh, Epstein and all other all these people who procured underage children and so on uh, for sexual, sexual favours for very important people uh, and wealthy folk, of course, um, that kind of scandal too has gone on, and they'll fight that tooth and nail as well. And you could, you, the big boys just don't get touched. The really big boys don't get touched. Uh, you know, it's always really been that way. But when you have a culture that's so corrupt at the top, and especially all throughout your positions of power, I'm afraid, folks, is completely over. That no country is safe from it. It's, they've all been done in, basically. And no country is immune from this this kind of thing. Corruption is all through, of all kinds of corruption, all through governments. It's the norm. And for you to expect to be run properly, to, to benefit the public, uh, is pie in, that's pie in the sky, and a different kind of pie. But uh, it truly is. Because you cannot get anything good coming out of corruption as they're all filling their pockets like crazy too with your tax money. And the politicians all have two or three homes that you all pay for. So they, they can always have the, the home in their constituency and the home halfway to the, to, to the federal government office and so on, and one in the main city as well. Now on a different topic to do with the internet, we know that censorship is coming. And nothing is ever portrayed to the public in a direct fashion. And often it's done in an opposite direction than what you'd expect, in fact, by uh, denials, for instance, things like that, is to go ahead and work around forms of censorship. We know what they've discussed with the CISPA beforehand and all the rest of it about giving licenses to those on the net, even to get on the net, especially bloggers and so on. And um, and that will come, there's no doubt about it. There has to be one, one world authority in charge of all information down the road, even though the net itself should belong to no one. Uh, but uh, in the world of power, as it's always been, uh, you've never had freedom, and, and you never will, actually. You've been the impression you're free, but you're not. But you think about the Sony hack, as they called it, and that was such a farce to start with, and definitely inside information was put out there. And uh, we know that uh, there's different characters involved with Sony who definitely want censorship in different ways. And, um, of course, I'm sure the, secret, the, 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 the various agencies within the U.S., the NSA, and so want to get in on this act too and use this thing, regardless of who started it. Um, it certainly wasn't North Korea uh, to use it to their advantage, as they always say. And... Um, 
uh, they're trying to revive different forms of censorship. But here's an article here, and it's from RT USA. It says, um, speaking at an electronic show, the United States top telecom regulator dismissed complaints that tougher regulations would discourage providers from upgrading their networks, seemingly indicating he will back tough net neutrality regulations. So you think, oh, okay, he's going to stay where he is and not go any further. But it says, Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler told audiences at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, at Los, in Las Vegas that net neutrality proposals don't go far enough, far enough to protect consumers. Policy analysts took that as a hint that Wheeler is leaning towards President Barack Obama's position on net neutrality, calling for Title II regulations for broadband providers that would regulate them as if they were utilities. And it says there was an effort made to see that Wheeler and the President were pulling in in opposite directions on this, which made for good headlines, but wasn't exactly the reality, said Wheeler. We're both pulling in the same direction, which is no blocking, no throttling of applications, and transparency on how do we get there. Now, that's not true, because they've been doing that for years, actually. I get through all the times and uploads and even downloads. And it says, Wheeler said that Title II reclassification would not harm investment, and that he was moving in that direction. He also said the commercial reasonableness test that he previously proposed was flawed. That test would have uh, scrutinized deals struck between Internet providers and content companies such as Netflix in order to speed up services to consumers. If they passed the test, the deals would have been approved, potentially creating the so-called Internet fast lanes, prioritizing service for those who paid more. Now, that's definitely coming. Definitely, definitely coming, because that was the agenda uh, that Jack Satali talked about in his, one of his last books, I think it was, where he said that eventually there would be two uh, classes, basically, of people in the future, those with uh, massive broadband and fast, like the fast lane, and those with much, much slower speeds and so on. And it says those with the fast will be the winners. It says that the FCC has been working for nearly a year on new rules governing how Internet service providers manage web traffic on their networks. Cable service companies don't want more regulations or reclassification. Internet users have been pressing for broadband service to be treated like a utility and for web traffic to remain on somewhat equal footing, disallowing ISPs to prioritize certain content. And well, we know darn well they already prioritize certain content. So under, we're here to help you, uh, verbiage basically. You know darn well they're pushing for much, much more. And um, once you have an organization running all the, the, the carriers and everything else, uh, they can then order the carriers to don't let that guy through and don't let this guy through. He said something or whatever we don't like. And they simply never have to admit it. It's all done verbally as by somebody phoning up the head. And, and that's how things actually work in real life. And there's no paper trails. And also this article too. Uh, it's got Netflix reaffirms policy against Canadians accessing, accessing U.S. sites, it says. Many Canadian Netflix subscribers use free or fee-based services such as virtual private networks to circumvent barriers in accessing content available in the U.S. And it says that, uh, so Netflix Inc. has restated its policy against virtual border crossing, a practice that has seen a growing number of Canadians bypassing regional blocks to access the streaming services U.S. catalogue. And it says here that what Canadians are doing is not illegal. So I guess they won't make it illegal. Who knows? Who knows? And and he's in Article 2. It says, New law bolsters cybersecurity protection. A new law strengthening cybersecurity protections critical to the electric utility industry and cooperatives is on the books. The cybersecurity measures focus on codifying government responsibilities for addressing threats to critical infrastructure. We applaud Congress for passing legislation to reinforce how the Department of Homeland Security works with the private sector on cybersecurity issues through its National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. The Homeland Security Center coordinates and shares information on cybersecurity with federal agencies, 
state, local, tribal, and territorial governments and across critical infrastructure such as electric utility industry. The National Cybersecurity Protection Act of 2014 provides the Department with guidance for cyber incident response. So they really are upping and upping and upping thing under, again, terrorism, isn't it? That's what they're doing. And that's why they're, they're, down the road they're going to issue definitely a, a, a license you have to buy to even be on the internet and so on and so on and so on. And remember, any license can get refused. Now, I've prattled on for years about our supposed experts. Supposedly, in this day and age, we have the best experts in the economy uh, that it can be possibly trained and found with all their multiple degrees and so on, and often the relation aspects to each other, you know. Uh, but regardless of all that, the Bank of England, it says here, was unaware of the impending financial crisis of 2008, you see. Unaware of it. They didn't notice it coming. Mervyn King uh, was governor of the bank during its financial crisis. A month before the start of the financial crisis, the Bank of England was apparently unaware of the impending danger. It makes you feel better now, eh? I mean, it makes you feel safer, doesn't it? Eh? Uh, new documents reveal its unique insight into its workings. The bank has published minutes of top secret meetings of its governing body, the court between 2007 and 2009. The minutes show that the bank did identify liquidity as a central concern in July 2007. However, no action was taken as, as a result. The documents show that the bank also used a series of code names for banks that were in trouble. The public were never to find out, you see. The Royal Bank of Scotland was known as Phoenix. Mind you, the Royal Bank of Scotland was actually, I think, 80% owned by the, the, the London government. The government owned it. And Lloyd's TSB as Lark. Following publication, Andrew Terry, or Tyree, Member of Parliament, Chairman of the Treasury Select Committee, was highly critical of some of the court's non-executive directors. He said they'd failed to challenge senior executive members like the, the then Governor Mervyn King, whom some accused of failing to prioritise financial stability. The minutes show that during the bank, the crisis, the Bank of England did not have a board worthy of the name. This mattered, and it still matters, said Mr. Tyree. John McFall, chairman of the Treasury Select Committee at the time, told the BBC they all missed the wider picture. They missed the interconnectedness of the whole financial system. What? These are the experts that run not just the country, but a good part of the world. And it says, uh, the minutes show that in July 2007, the court, akin to a company board, so private again, spent time discussing staff pensions, open days, and new members of the Monetary Policy Committee, and probably their big bonuses at you know, Christmas. Northern Rock uh, Q1000s uh, to take their money. Oh, it shows you the pictures of folk <laughs> trying to get money out of Northern Rock. Members heard that the bank was working on a new model to detect risks to the financial system, but there was little suggestion of any impending trouble. You feel more confident now, don't you? Less than a month later, on 9th of August, the French bank BNP, Paribas, came clean about its exposure to subprime mortgages and what some believe was the start of the financial crisis. Six weeks later, despite some turmoil in financial markets, court members were told to have confidence in the triple oversight of the Bank of England, the Treasury, and the then Financial Services Authority. The executive believed that the events of last month had proven the sense, the sense and strength of the, the tripartite framework. The next day, the banking crisis began in earnest. <laughs> well, we will never see it coming, eh? You, you won't ever see it. It's just, isn't it lies, though? Isn't it like they, 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 they've been exposed to the different banks had meetings, knowing government were going to bail them out anyway, so they kept going till it happened. Corruption's everywhere, eh? And since on that day that the, 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 the crisis began in earnest, it all came out in, in newspapers. Thirteenth uh, of September, two thousand and seven, members of the court were called to an emergency meeting just as the BBC reported that Northern Rock had applied to the Bank of England for a rescue loan. 
Since the news was no longer a secret, thousands of customers were in the meantime queuing outside Northern Rock branches to withdraw their money. But then the minutes showed that the court members were in no doubt about the risk posed to the economy by the failure of Northern Rock. Both the bank and the FSA were in total agreement that if Northern Rock was allowed to fail, it would create serious economic damage, the minutes record. Now, what other pieces of uh, nonsense are pushed out for us to absorb and argue over and worry over and all the usual kinds of things that they're dished out every day for us to... It really is meant to get young anxious and so on, etc., etc. The point is also to overwhelm you and make you think there's nothing you can do about anything. And that creates apathy, which of course is a great method of tyrants wanting to control everybody when you're apathetic. But um, literally, for well over 100 years, there's not been one generation that was given any peace at all. It was either warfare going on or they give you economic uh, crashes, or layoffs, and things like that, or downturns, all these fancy names that they have for their little games. And um, you never get peace to enjoy life, of course. And that's, that's a very important factor in controlling populations, because if you're abused, you always turn to the abuser for help. And so they keep abusing you, and the people automatically shout to the government, help us, help us, and they're not too happy to bring out new laws and taxes and everything else. So it's quite interesting how things really work. It's very simple, really, but it's been done for such an awful long time. We take it for granted and think it's all normal. Until literally the state is is supreme. The state is God. That's the whole point of it all. And that's what they said. The humanists said way back a long time ago uh, that the state would become God, in other words, and all the experts that run your lives would be put in place. Well, that's all happened as well and getting worse all the time. But you take these stories that are dished out. I mean, the euro has hit a fresh nine-year low against the dollar, in part after a surprise decrease in German manufacturing. And says that says that if the European Central Bank moves to support the region's economy with quantitative easing, which means devaluing your currency, because uh, devaluing your currency is supposed to help uh, foreign buyers buy your products, etc., etc. That's if you're producing at all, and most countries are not producing, well, except for debt, uh, because their factories are all gone to China, and were helped to go there by your governments. Uh, all signing on to the World Trade Organization and the GATT Treaty and so on. But it says here that uh, are buying government bonds, as the speculation suggests, this pushes a, a rate uh, rise even further in the future, making the Eurozone less attractive for investors. Uh, so there you go. And the Greek, uh, I think the Greek um, election is coming up, and they say that may be spooking investors as well. So uh, Mario Draghi, who is the ECB president, this, this conglomerate, this new Soviet, super Soviet, advanced Soviet, uh, called the European Union uh, president, he said that, that uh, the bank could soon start quantitative easing, which means devaluing your currency again and putting up, putting up all your internal prices, so that's well on its way. And then the usual thing, though, I've seen this article come out so many times, every year I think they publish it, uh, it says that Americans are feeling better about their job security and economy, but most are theoretically only one paycheck away from the street. I won't, I won't read it because, I mean, you all know it's probably true. But again, you're encouraged to spend all the all that comes in. That's been lifestyle since the days of uh, Edward Bernays, since he pushed that whole idea to keep buy, buy, buying all their produce. And folk will try to live up to it too. And it says that if any emergency pops up, like a car repair or something like that, or an emergency room visit, uh, can just wipe them out altogether. And then you have The Economist, it says, um, it's quite interesting. It says, <laughs> it's interesting in so many ways for those who understand. But it says, they leave Janet Yellen off the list of its most influential economists. This is from The Guardian. It says, um, if the... If the current Federal Reserve chair is not an influential economist, who is? This is uh, the irony of Yellen's exclusion from the list is that it's because she's too powerful, that's what they're saying, rather than not powerful enough. And it says, uh, uh, Ben Bernanke ran the Federal Reserve and can't get a new mortgage. <laughs> Fed chairman uh, Janet Yellen says, income inequality is un-American.
really, I, mean, but I don't think she's even from America. But uh, it says the economist's annual list of the most influential economists is out, except this year something seems to be missing, the most powerful economist in America. What's an economist anyway when they're never right? Although they, they never get poorer themselves, if you notice, eh? Janet Yellen, who was sworn in as the first woman chair in the Federal Reserve, February did not make it on the list. Sadly, neither did any other female economists. The worst part, Ben Bernanke, who presided Yellen as the head of the Fed, made it on the all-male list again this year. He became in, he came in fifth. In 2011, the magazine named Bernanke the economist of the decade, noting that when it comes to real power, no one can compete with Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. The way that the economist is on the list that are chosen is based on how much attention was paid to their utterances in the mainstream media, uh, the, the blogosphere and the social media, during three, the three months leading up to December, according to the magazine. As such, it comes as a shock that Yellen didn't make it to the list. When the Federal Reserve Chair speaks, beat Bernanke or Yellen, people pay attention. In fact, this year when speaking at, at the 2014 World of Business Forum, Bernanke explained that what the Fed chair says it could have an impact on the stock market. Well, they've proven that in the past. He says, I realize that it isn't my words that matter. It's the fact that the Fed chairman has influence on monetary policy. It does not mean you have to take care uh, with words, he says. He said, moving the market is not a great thing because if you are communicating clearly and people understand what you're doing, then you shouldn't be surprising the market very much. And even Bernanke's reputation suffers outside the wonky economist community. About 17% of Americans still think that Alan Greenspan is the Fed chairman. So according to the economist, Janet Yellen was not included in this ranking because the central bank governors were not considered for the list. They said, we made a decision not to include serving central bank governors because... Their pronouncements uh, are also the official views of the institutions they represent. Janet Yellen is the most influential economist in the world because she's the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve. Mario Draghi has the same position in Europe because of his presidency of the European Central Bank. Said the magazine a statement, the irony uh, of Mrs. Yellen's exclusion from the list was that, was that she's too powerful rather than not powerful enough. There's your... It's such rubbish anyway, isn't it? Such rubbish, really. Economists apparently never see crashes coming, supposedly. And that's the best we've got, we're told. You're supposed to believe that. It's all a racket, folks. Money's always been a racket. And often run by a particular group of people who tend to keep it in their family, you might say. It's in their article too, it says migrant shoplifter told to claim benefits, this is in Britain, rather than steal uh, from shops by a judge. And it says this guy was um, a jobless migrant who racked up a string of shoplifting convictions just months after arriving in the UK was told by a judge to stop stealing and claim benefits instead. Pomalecki, his name is, admitted stealing perfume on more than one occasion and it says, um, he began stealing perfume after moving to Britain from Poland in October last year. The 20-year-old was unaware of how to claim benefits and was penniless, the court heard. Just weeks after arriving in Nottingham, he was arrested after being caught shoplifting the, uh, designer perfume worth £144 from House of Fraser on November 17th. He was conditionally discharged November 28th after admitting theft at Nottingham Magistrates Court. But the very next day, Pomalecki stole perfume from Boots, that's a big pharmacy chain, followed by another 144 bottle from the house of Fraser on December 6th. Then on December 11th, he stole yet another bottle of fragrance from Boots. I wonder where he was selling them to. He was finally arrested, but on Tuesday was spared jail once again, despite admitting three thefts. I wonder if they'd do that if someone was a, a British citizen. Anyway, says Pomalecki was virtually unable to speak English, was handed a community order in order to carry out 60 hours of unpaid work. District Judge Tim Davis asked the thief what his plans were for the next few months, but in reply that he was going to get a job. Yeah, sure. A job doing what, you know? I mean, but it says, uh, Judge Devas says, um, 
Now, what happens to you if you steal anything from my shop again? Speaking through the Polish interpreter, Pomalecki replied, Well, I would be punished more severely in whatever sentence you give, you give me today. Boots is just one of Pomalecki's targets. And it says, Take some advice about benefits or anything else, but you must not commit any other thefts. For a number of reasons, including your age, early guilty pleas, nature of the offences, and the time you have spent in custody, I will deal, deal with you by way of a community order with unpaid work of 60 hours. Don't even think about stealing anything, otherwise I might send you back to Poland. They won't send them back regardless. And uh, I also in- increased the compensation owed by Paleski to £193 fine, I guess, the compensation. So you're going to work that off in community service. It says here that the defending uh, uh, lawyer, David Gittins, says Pomalecki was unaware of the benefits system, which is a joke. I mean, the advertiser abroad. I was likely to stop stealing in the near future. I wonder when he's going to decide. He's going to decide he's got maybe a whole bunch of more thefts to do first. He added he has no income. Well, where's all this money going for the stuff he's stealing? And obviously selling. Jonathan Isabey, chief executive of the Taxpayers Alliance, said the benefits system should be a safety net, not a comfort blanket. The judge's advice should have been to look for work, but not for welfare. Well, that's why most folk are, are flying to Britain right now, actually, and, and have been doing since the 70s in increasing numbers. You know, big business really, really rules. And, of course, all big businesses have... Uh, have lobby groups lobbying government all the time, professional lobbyists, full paid, full time paid, and that's all. You can't get in to see the congressmen so on in the US or any country you live in, you can't get in to see the politicians, but they can get in immediately. In fact, they, they often have uh, apartments, complexes around the parliament buildings just for lobbyists, you see, because business rules, big business rules. And lots of money changes hands, not just, uh, it's, not, it's just not kind of a friendly chat with you, Mr. MP. But so here's the article here about the, the tests on Ebola vaccine. Restart will follow pause to assess reports of joint pain in the vaccine. People usually got the, the test trial. A Geneva hospital said Monday it was resuming tests of an experimental Ebola vaccine licensed by American Co. after a three-week pause in the trial to assess reports of mild joint pain in volunteers. In a statement, the University of Hospitals of Geneva said a second test group of 56 people received injections of the vaccine known by the code name of VSV Zebob uh, at a lower dose than the initial group of volunteers, it says. So we have a lower dose, but you find that with a lot of different vaccines, uh, they can end up turning your immune system kind of haywire and they'll attack the joints. For life, often, you know, that's the way it is. It ends up with a form of arthritis. Your own uh, white blood cells will attack your joints and things. But, but uh, you know, the big corporations like, like this, they, they don't give up when they put money in, in anything. They don't give up or toss it out and say, this is bad. Uh, even the thalidomide that caused a tremendous outbreak of, of deformed children who... Uh, whose mothers took the drug, this particular drug, when they were pregnant. Uh, oh, it was a terrible thing. They, they, they were born missing limbs and had short. The ones that they had were really short sometimes or a hand would stick out where your shoulder should be, things like that. And they brought that back eventually under another guise for different treatments. Never stop. And then we have an article too about uh, take your mandatory flu shot and shove it. New York Post. Interesting, with the, interesting too, they came out with the CDC and the World Health Organization said, that, oh, well, we always choose the most prevalent flus that we think are going to travel across the world that year. And they've never been right yet. And they've made it again, the one that's given them right now doesn't have the, the prevailing flu that's, that people are getting. But they're telling folk to get it anyway, the shock. Or, and one of the articles even said, I was reading, even said that uh, uh, we've got to keep the people to keep taking their annual flu shot because once they make a break in their training, they see they're training you take shots all the time, a break in their training, they might just skip it next year. Anyway, uh, this article here goes on about um, 
Last week, the City Board of Health voted to force annual flu vaccines on all babies and children under the age of five who attend daycare centres and preschool programmes. This is here Sophia Ling, mother of three-year-old Una and a fitness instructor in Staten Island, tells the post Mary Kay Ling how the risks of the shot outweigh the benefits and wants nannying bureaucrats to stop trampling parents' rights. See, government now and all the arms of government are used by the big corporations now, aren't they? just to get their products out. I mean, there's nothing better. Imagine government mandating. If you start a little company to make, say, buckets and, sh- and, and say, spades or shovels, that they have to buy your brand. It's not what before. Everybody had to buy one. Oh, hey, you don't have to start advertising and spend money on that and try to con folk into buying your product. Uh, the government to do it for them by passing laws. So when I first heard about the new flu vaccine rule, I was upset but not surprised. The Board of Health did this so quietly with no input from parents of young children. That's standard these days. The unanimous vote was cast before New Yorkers had any chance to protest. Well, if they couldn't protest, they didn't know. So I don't respond well to being bullied on a matter of personal health. I also dislike the underhanded way this is being forced only on our youngest uh, citizens. Parents of toddlers aren't an organised political faction. We're a bit too busy keeping the children safe and calculating the distance to the nearest potty. To get more facts about the flu vaccine, I turned to the Staten Island Natural and Attachment Parenting Group on Facebook. Mums banding together are a powerful force, and I followed the links to documents from the Centers for Disease Control, Vaccine Manufacturers and Research Studies. The more I learned, the more livid I became. In any given year, the CDC admits the flu vaccine may be totally ineffective against the flu. That's because scientists have to guess which strain of the virus will go around each year. Some years they guess wrong. Actually, it's most years. If, if I think them all, actually. This is, at best, the flu vaccine may be 60% effective. That's what they tell you without doing studies, by the way. They don't do the studies on them. To me, a 0 to 60% efficacy rate equals one thing, which is fail. Plenty of people who get the flu shot come down with the flu anyway, and it's true. I see, it happened to me annually. The only time I got a flu shot during the pregnancy, I was sick for a week. But only that, the CDC says the flu vaccine works best amongst healthy adults and older children. Less well for babies and toddlers, the very people being targeted by the city's new rule. Safety testing on children, especially babies and toddlers, has been limited. And to the side effects of the flu vaccine, they're very real. The manufacturer's warning labels give a long list of potential risks, everything from fever and headache to convulsions, blood disorders, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Last flu season, at least five young children died as a direct result of the flu vaccine, according to the federal database that tracked adverse reactions during the 2012-13 flu season. So I'm willing to roll the dice and hope that Obama, or Una, is one of the lucky ones. No, she's not willing. She's, in my judgment, the potential risk to my daughter outweigh the possible benefits. And she goes on and on and on. But that's how it's done. You're simply not told anymore. Just pass the laws and make it policy. There's policy. You can't get any preschool. I mean, it started with the universities and went down through the colleges, high schools, and so on. You've got to have shots to get in. They're policy. And believe you me, these schools will get backhanders too from the big pharma companies for putting those policies through. And it says, New York City requiring flu shots for preschoolers again. And then this one here has to do with um, a Sydney venue has cancelled talks by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, an American anti-vaccine activist who is scheduled to give a series of lectures across Australia in March. The Karina Karila Golf and Social Club in Sydney South has cancelled talks by osteopath Dr. Sherry Tenpenny anti-vaccine activist who was due to hold a seminar at the venue. General manager of the Karela Club, Dennis Skinner, said he didn't want to be involved with the controversial subjects, so suddenly leaned on them. The big pharma boys would do it, and their own health system, national health system. The club is a venue. It says, we don't have a position for or against this. We just decided the subject matter was too controversial for us to be involved, he told ABC. Uh, the Carrera Club has since been criticised by Dr. Tempany supporters with many leaving bad reviews on their Facebook page. And lastly, we have the one on Obamacare, of course. 
It says, Obamacare fines are rising in 2015 and the Inland Revenue Service prepares to collect. And so really it's a, it's a huge tax, isn't it, for the IRS to be even involved in it. But it says, um, uh, don't have health insurance, get ready to pay up. The Obamacare mandated fines for not having insurance are rising in 2015 and for the first time will be collected by the Internal Revenue Service. The individual requirement to buy health insurance went into effect earlier this year, but this coming tax season is the first time all tax uh, payers will have to report to the IRS where they have health insurance prior for the prior year. The fines for the 2014 year were relatively modest, $95 per person, or 1% of the household income above the threshold for filing taxes, whichever is more. But insurance uh, scofflaws, uh, which face a sharp increase if they don't get covered soon, it says the fine will jump in 2015 to $325, or 2% of income, uh, whichever is higher. By 2016, the average fine will be be around $1,100, based on government figures. The insurance requirement and penalties that remain the most unpopular part of the health care law. They were intended to serve a broader purpose by nudging healthy people into the insurance pool, helping to keep premiums more affordable. But the application of fines in 2015 could renew criticism of the law at a time when Republicans are taking control of Congress and looking at ways to undercut the policy. According to government figures, tens of millions of people still fail or fall into the ranks of the uninsured. It's unclear how many would actually be assessed a fine. The law offers 30 different exemptions, most of which involve financial hardships. Further, it's unclear how aggressively the IRS would go after the fines. They'll probably get SWAT teams after them eventually. I'm not kidding about that. That'll come down after a few years. Many taxpayers may be able to get a pass. Based on congressional analysis, tax preparation giant H&R Block says roughly 4 million uninsured people will pay penalties and $26 million will qualify for exemptions uh, from the list of waivers. The same what kind of waiver to seek could be crucial. Some can claim, uh, be claimed directly on a tax return, but others involve mainly paperwork to the Department of Health and Human Services. Tax preparation companies say the IRS has told them it's taking steps to make sure taxpayers' returns don't languish in bureaucratic limbo while the HHS rules on the waivers. TurboTax has created a free online tool called Exemption Check for people to see if they may qualify for a waiver and charges apply later if a taxpayer files through TurboTax. People can also get a sense for the potential hit by going online and using the Tax Policy Center's Affordable Care Act penalty calculator. And I'll tell you another thing too, once it's, it's, it's routine and everyone's accepted it and the, you'll find that then they'll mandate from the government They'll mandate all the shots, etc., and keep increasing them, increasing them. That's what they did. That's what they used the National Health Service in Britain for. They start making it an authority, you understand. It's not a service, it's an authority. And that's, they all start off as services and become authorities. It's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite something to, to watch this nonsense go on and on and on. Quite something. And like all reality, which is bunkum, I'll just say this last little thing I wasn't going to, but it says, the first Ebola, Ebola boy who's infected, says likely infected by playing in a bat tree. Remember, this, they gave the same rubbish about the AIDS. Like, you know, oh, it could be a cave where bats lived. Could it be this cave here, etc. And documentaries they made at the time. Uh, I guess it's Batman, eh? But it says... Um, uh, bat, uh, I show you bats being captured to be tested for Ebola, etc., etc., in West Africa. But it says the Ebola victim who is believed to have triggered the current outbreak, a two-year-old boy called Emil Kwamuno from uh, Guinea, may have been infected by playing in a hollow tree housing a colony of bats, say scientists. They made the connection on the expedition to the boy's village, Meliandu. They took samples and chatted to locals to find out more about uh, Ebola's source. The team's findings are published in EMBO's Molecular Medicine. It's, it's quite amazing. It's a, but you know, I'll tell you another thing too. I mean, this isn't the standard Ebola that's been coming into the States here um, that, that was out initially. Um, there's a lot of different symptoms and so on. So I think it's probably all producing labs like so many other things are too. 
and uh, and of course the agencies that will deal with that kind of thing doing it all quietly uh, will never admit that to the general public. So we're, we're given you know bats are causing it, etc., which is enough to drive you batty. But uh, these articles, as I say, are, are like fillers. They just churn them out by machine, I think. Probably computers. They just give us another two dozen fillers and, and we'll show it in the papers for the for the general cattle to, to lap up and yap about. Because uh, you really get fed up with the articles they put out there and the way they're presented to the general population. Maybe we are becoming all more stupid because they're getting more and more ridiculous all the time. And there's no real news going on, as you all know. Uh, all reality is pretty well hidden from the general public. And we're managed truly, just like the, the, the herd management that the, the health services call managing us all with the vaccinations. They call it herd management. That's how governments now run all of our lives. We're, we're just the big herd. And different factions of the herd have special agencies uh, forcing them to go along with the rest of the herd and things like that. It's just herd management. In the way that you look at it. Well, from Hamish myself, from a very freezing Ontario, Canada, because of global warming, of course, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's school with you. <laughs>